This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. How should we view the 2020 elections in the broader arc of American political history? What are some key questions we should be considering for governance in the wake of such a divisive election? What role does morality policy play in electoral politics? And what is the state of our political parties? Welcome to Democracy Matters. I'm Kara Ongwaley, your co-host, and in this episode, we're going to dive into these questions and much more with JMU political science faculty, Dr. Marty Cohen and Dr. Kathleen Ferriolo. Enjoy the episode. Thank you both so much for, for joining us today. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how we should view the 2020 elections in the broader arc of American political history. And what are some key questions we should be considering for governance in the wake of such a divisive election? Um, Well, I have heard the refrain, uh, this is the most important election in history uh, every four years since I can remember. Uh, I understand why we are told this, uh, but I've yet to believe it and don't think that has ever really been true. The boy who cried wolf seems to be a good analogy. All that being said, wolf, uh, because of who the incumbent is and has been, this election is the most important since 1860 when Abraham Lincoln first won the White House and we were on the verge of civil war. Uh, American democracy has been diminished and tarnished noticeably over the last five years. Uh, Four more years and it might be decades before we recover, uh, if ever. That's a great analogy. I think uh, we do often hear that it is the most important election. And um, I just to, uh, to to reinforce what Marty just said, I think um, a lot of the questions my students are asking right now have to do with um, the transfer of power. And uh, to what, you know, should we be concerned about a peaceful transfer of power? That is not a conversation we typically have uh, when we elect a, a potentially a new president. So um I think there's implications there if that were to be problematic, if the results of the election um, were to be contested, uh, that would be problematic in in terms of governance moving forward. Um, I think even on, uh, you know, uh, a more specific level, a somewhat less broad level, um, I think about the implications for divided versus unified government and um, what the uh, policy implications will be. Of, of that, depending on what happens both at the presidential level and in the Senate and House. Um, and I know, I think we're going to talk about political parties later, and I know Marty knows a lot about this. Um, I think about the implications of the parties, for the parties for this election, and their ability to uh, to govern in, um, in, in, at the federal level. Um, and the cleavages that we see in the two-party system today, and um, what will what that will look like even three months from now, I think might be very different from what we see today. Can you speak more about the diminished democracy that you described at the beginning of your response, Marty? Yes. Um, I mean, politics and governance before Donald Trump uh, came down that escalator five years ago, five and a half years ago, uh, was far from perfect. Um, And Trump has capitalized on some very troubling trends uh, including uh, intense polarization, uh, negative partisanship, and what I call the celebritification of politics. Um, he has also awoken latent prejudices and animosities that have been dormant for decades. And so I think that, you know, 
we should consider not just how to right the wrongs perpetrated by this president, but some of these conditions need to be corrected that made it possible for him to rise to power in the first place. And so intense polarization, negative partisanship, uh, and you know, celebrities uh, getting involved in politics um, has diminished the product. Uh, we see a lot more gridlock, uh, legislative gridlock in particular, and obviously the presidential flouting of norms um, has really uh, damaged our credibility, both amongst the domestic public and abroad. Marty, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the celebrity, the celebritization of politics and why celebrity has come to play such a prominent role in presidential politics and elections. Well, I mean, our society has become a reality TV society, and it's not surprising that it has bled, bled into politics. Um, in politics, name recognition is so important, and you know you need to be recognized. And a previously unknown candidate has to buy that recognition, quite simply, uh, through uh, expensive means, television ads and other things. Celebrities already have name recognition, uh, so they are ahead of the game in that respect. Uh, but what celebrities don't have uh, is uh, experience, political experience, and that used to be a disadvantage. And now it's not only not a disadvantage, it's often an advantage to have to not have political experience when running for office. Personally, you know, I don't understand that mentality. Um, you know, if your pipes are clogged, you look for the most experienced plumber. Uh, if you need brain surgery, you don't say, oh, get me someone who's never done that before. Um, get me a real estate developer to operate on my brain. Um, politics is really the only area where we denigrate experience. That's... Um that's interesting. I, I think that's a really, really great point. And the point that Marty made about the role of money in politics has only has grown dramatically over the last several decades. And um, celebrities are, are often the ones who can overcome the obstacles uh, that that candidates face in, in raising and, and spending money and the, the vast amounts of money that are needed to be competitive, um, I think is a really uh, I think that's a really good point. So with regard to experience, um, I, I think that's a really good point as well, that uh, we, we, it's not important anymore to have experience. And it's one thing to say that experience isn't, isn't important um, when you're looking at uh, a lower level, uh, you know, maybe a state legislature where it's quite unpro unprofessionalized and they, it's a part-time legislature and they only meet for a few weeks a year and you can have somebody who that's not their full-time job and they're kind of a citizen legislator. But when we're talking about people who are, this is their full-time job, and we're talking about the federal level, the president, members of Congress, um, that is concerning. And I, I do think that, you know, to tie it back to these other broader themes, I mean, I think that this is, why is it that people don't value experience? Um, you know, uh, I think it's connected to this issue of the role of money. I think it's connected to larger trends in, with respect to the loss of trust in government that we've witnessed over the past several decades and the perception of, um, you know, that, that uh, people are frustrated with, um, with the legislative branch and with, and with government. And so instead of kind of trying to fix what's wrong, uh, many of us just throw up our hands and say, you know, throw them all out and, and let's replace them. Um, and then we create new problems that doesn't necessarily solve those problems. That's not new, though, is it? 
I mean, when I think about Barack Obama first running against John McCain and some of the other really experienced politicians that became presidents but were one-term presidents, I think about George Bush Sr., is that something that you see as new, or is it heightened now, or is this just characteristic of the American electorate, that we, we tend to blame those on the inside and rush towards those on the outside? seems like there's that there's kind of a rising trend really since uh, the election of Jimmy Carter right. towards outsider politics, right? That we at least see candidates trying to run um, as an outsider, even if they may not necessarily be. Um, and there's also partisan differences in who prefers an outside candidate versus an inside candidate. So for example, in the 2016 election, there was a much greater preference within the electorate that identifies more Republican for an outsider candidate versus um, in 28, uh, in 2008, where Democrats preferred um, you know, more of an outside candidate compared to Repu the Republican electorate. Yeah, I think certainly Jimmy Carter was less experienced. Uh, Barack Obama was less experienced, uh, but they were they had experience, governing experience. And and Jimmy Carter was a governor of Georgia, obviously. And uh, Barack Obama, you know, even though he was only a first term uh, senator, um, had political experience. He was a community organizer uh, earlier in his career. Um, I think the trend has been there for, for since Watergate and, and Vietnam, uh, and obviously Jimmy Carter would be the first election since that those two events. Um, but it's just been taken to a whole nother level with Donald Trump uh, being, you know, having obviously zero political experience. The first presidential uh, major presidential candidate uh, in history without political or military experience. Kathleen, according to LexisNexis Presidential Campaign Tracker, abortion has been a key topic discussed by the candidates in this election. Can you please speak to why and how this issue has been used by candidates and the parties to mobilize supporters? And I wonder if you could also address how else we see morality policy playing out in electoral politics. Sure. Uh, well, abortion is... I think the quintessential morality policy issue. There's been a lot of other issues that um, we might have thought of as morality policy in the past that arguably no longer exhibit the characteristics of morality policy that um, researchers would identify. I think there are other issues, and we can talk about this, um, that we would not uh, historically have thought of as moral issues that have become moral issues over the last several years. But uh, where it comes to abortion, um, you know, I always think about uh, whenever we talk about this in my classes, I, I kind of start with public opinion because it's, it's quite complicated on this issue. And um, I think one way to summarize the nature of public opinion would be to say that um, the majority of the public does support legal access to abortion with restrictions. Um, a majority of the public does not support overturning Roe v. Wade. Um, and yet, I think to your question, how the candidates and parties are addressing this issue, we often see them talking about kind of the most extreme circumstances. Um, it's become an issue that is very uh, polarizing and mobilizing to the bases of the parties. Um, but it's an issue where there's, I always say, a lot more agreement and consensus among the mass public than is often assumed. Um, 
you know, I think for people who uh, who care a lot about this issue and um, and and are activists around this issue um, in in either party, it is a, a clash of fundamental values. It's it's more than about it's it's about more than just abortion. It's about personhood. It's about uh, a woman's role in society. It's about the role of parenthood and children. Um, it's about gender roles and, and, and lifestyles. Um, and so that's why it is and has been for decades um, such a quintessential morality issue. However, I think that the fact that we see these differences um, from the two sides does conceal the fact that there is some some agreement. And, you know, when I think about where the parties stand on abortion today, um, just even compared to the Clinton era, a couple of decades ago, you know, Bill Clinton had this famous formulation that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Um, you couldn't say that as a Democrat today, I don't think. Uh, you know, the Republican Party w once had a position on abortion that um, was, you know, more moderate and is now, you know, advocating for significant restrictions on access to abortion in the states and, and achieving quite a lot of success with that. Um, so I think it's it's an issue that is is touchy for the candidates uh, because their bases are so their bases are so polarized, and yet there are places of agreement. But perhaps you know, in this polarized world that we live in, it's it's difficult for the candidates to articulate um, those kind of more moderate positions. Yeah, I I think the, the Kathleen makes a good point uh, when talking about the activists and their outsized role in not only this issue but many issues. Um, activists, uh, I feel, drive political uh, behavior, drive uh, the agenda, and certainly are at the forefront of uh, what parties do. And so, when activists um, push a more extreme agenda than what the median voter is comfortable with. Uh, that agenda can't really be put out there um, in its entirety. Uh, it will be rejected. It would be rejected by the median voter. So we don't get a lot of public debate on abortion, even though it's obviously a salient issue for many. Um, the candidates don't run ads you know, talking about their views on abortion so much, and Kathleen could correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not front and center in these campaigns um, at least overtly. I mean, certainly when you talk to the base and when you're firing up the base, you're going to address that. But, but for the median voter, Kathleen's right. These the the parties hold pretty extreme views, and uh, the public opinion is uh, much more nuanced than that. And there's a lot more overlap um, between the the party, um, the masses, as opposed to the elites. Yeah, and that's why I think with the Barrett, I mean, abortion was kind of a, an issue that was flying under the radar a little bit in 2020 until, you know, um, we saw the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and we see the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. And all of a sudden now we're, we're, we're talking much more about it um, in the last several weeks. And, and yeah, I think that also reinforces Marty's point that, I mean, obviously the activists on both sides are very energized by this nomination. Um, you know, uh, I mean, for liberal activists, the, the, the idea that Roe v. Wade could potentially be overturned is terrifying, um, and they're going to, you know, use kind of that threat. Even though I would sort of argue, I, I don't, I'm not convinced that that it is as is, that this nomination is as grave a threat to Roe v. Wade as maybe some. But we can talk about that. Uh, but they're, you know, the the, the pro-choice, the liberal side, and the activists, the abortion rights supporters will absolutely um, 
we'll be talking about that and have talked about that at, at length uh, because um, it's the issue, as I said, it's an issue that, that frames their, their worldview. It's about, it's about, it's not just about abortion. It's about women's autonomy. It's about reproductive justice. And on the other side, you know, the conservative activists, we know that um, President Trump got a lot of his support in 2016 from evangelical uh, Christians and a major issue for them, maybe the top issue, Marty can correct me if I'm wrong, is abortion. Um, and so, uh, you know, the idea of having a, a conservative majority, a potentially anti-Roe conservative majority on the Supreme Court is is something that's very um, mobilizing for that group. I look at it, for, again, from the standpoint of the political parties. I mean, to, to survive and thrive, parties need people to vote. Obviously, they need their people to vote. They need their people to donate money, to volunteer. And abortion just does a really good job of motivating people to participate in public life. You mentioned also issues that have become moral issues over time. I wonder if you can talk about what some of those other issues might be that have become morality issues and, and why that's the case. Sure, sure. Uh, well, when we think about you know the question of what is morality policy, uh, there is a, a strand of literature that suggests it's not this concrete, substantive section of set of policies, and these are the moral policies, and these aren't. Um, there is an evolving uh, trend in the literature that is going to argue that it's all about framing. It's about successful framing. And so traditionally, we would think of policies like, obviously, abortion, um, maybe gambling, something like uh, drug control, something like LGBTQ rights. We would think of these as, as classic examples of morality policy. Uh, some of them probably still are, um, certainly abortion is. Uh, but I think of, in terms of issues that have become moralized over time, I, I certainly think about climate change as an example of that. Um, if you look at the rhetoric of uh, progressives on the topic of climate change, I think there is certainly a moral dimension to that rhetoric. Um, I think about, uh, for conservatives in the past, maybe not so much now, um, but I think about sort of um, the uh, the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus maybe talking about the national debt um, being a kind of moral issue, like we can't pass this on to future generations, it's wrong. Uh, more recently, racial justice um, certainly would begin to fall if under that category of um, many people seeing that as a kind of moral crusade. So those would be some that would come to mind. Income inequality might be another. You know, it's not just that it's wrong that we have this level of income inequality in the United States. It's it's ethically wrong. It's morally wrong that, you know, somebody, sh uh, a head of a company should be paid 200 times what a worker is paid, that that's not just wrong from a policymaking perspective, but it, it's wrong from a moral perspective. I think you're hearing those arguments uh, um, as well. So it's interesting because Traditionally, we think of moral, morality policy as being the domain of the um, ideological right. I think over the last several years, it has become something that is, the left has focused uh, more on. Um, so that's, a, that's an interesting shift. What is the significance of framing something as a moral rather than a, a you know, just a, another policy issue? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the significance is uh, you know, Marty said, how do you get people to, to, to be involved in parties and how do you get them to donate money and write letters and campaign and, and canvas? And I mean, if you define something as a clash, it's, it's a clash of fundamental values. It's a clash of it, it's right and wrong. There's something just powerful about that. And so, um, I mean, I think that can be mobilizing for the, the, the base. 
um, it can raise the stakes, the perceived stakes, and say that, you know, um, the, kind of we're right and they're wrong. Maybe there's something about that in an era of polarization that is compelling. Um, and I think there is, beyond just, you know, strategic considerations, I do think that for people who think that climate change is a moral issue, that it truly is uh, for them an, an existential crisis. And um, it, it's something that, that you know, it, it's not just about, uh, should we, you know, should we raise taxes in a certain bracket from 23 to 24%? It's an existential crisis that threatens the livelihood in the future of the, of the, the generations on this earth. And so that, it, it gives people a sense that the stakes are quite high and, um, and maybe draws more attention to the issue and gets, and, and mobilizes people to become uh, more, more active and involved. So we, we often hear of American exceptionalism, um, you know, that America's values, political system, and history are unique um, and worthy of universal admiration. Um, while there are certainly qualities that are unique to the United States, um, uh, maybe the Electoral College especially, um, or the emphasis on religion and individual freedom uh, in our political culture, I wonder how both of you view American elections and politics in a broader global context, and especially with regards to the democratic practices that we employ. I mean, I think we have pioneered many of the fundamental tenets of democratic politics. Uh, and on this, uh, we have been truly exceptional uh, in the most positive sense of the word. Um, other countries have replicated and even improved upon our most cherished institutions and norms. Uh, and going off of that, we are not guaranteed the preeminent place in the world when it comes to liberal democracy. Uh, we have to work at it and continue to uh, adjust. For instance, a hallmark of our system has been free, fair, and competitive elections. But we have to keep asking ourselves periodically, and I think especially now, if they are still free, fair, and competitive. So are our elections free? Well, many Americans, as we all know, have been disenfranchised for a number of reasons in recent years. Are they fair? Um, should it be, is it fair that people reasonably are asked to, to wait 10 hours in line to vote? Um, and are they competitive? Uh, well, when 90 to 95% of House incumbents get reelected uh, each cycle with most winning quite easily, uh, that is also a question that is not settled. Um, I think we must continue to fight to stay exceptional and to continue to be at, in a preeminent place uh, in the world's uh, governments. Yeah, uh, that's a really good point. And, and um, the point about free and fair elections, I was kind of thinking about um, the, uh, the tension between, I guess, you know, a more individualistic perspective and a more communitarian perspective. And when I think about American exceptionalism, um, one thing that comes to my mind is is just our um, this 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 sense of individualism that we that we have and that many people cherish. You know, um, I talk about in my classes when we talk about voting, uh, we talk about how low turnout rates, as Marty alluded to, are in this country, and how other countries um, uh, try to incentivize turnout in various ways, whether it's through automatic registration for voters or whether it's through compulsory voting or even fines. Um, and, and so, you know, I always ask, like, how would that go over in this country? And, and I think there would be resistance to that, um, to those types of, of proposals. And, and maybe some of those are very good proposals. Uh, but we do have this, this sense of 
of individualism that it can be really powerful and, and, and beneficial in some ways and that can have detrimental effects in, in other ways. Um, when I think about governance and policy, you know, there can be this sense of kind of self-interest and, and you know, I, I need to look out for myself and, and, and less of a concern for the general welfare. Um, all you have to do is look to something, a policy area like universal health care, family leave, um, unemployment insurance to, to, to see examples of how that individualistic uh, culture bears itself out in our country. And so um, I agree with Marty that we need to, to work at these things. And um, to some extent, we have to kind of swim against the current uh, when we try to, to make improvements to, to, to the functioning and the strength of our, of our democracy. Political parties are supposed to provide a crucial link between the public and policy outcomes. How would you describe the state of our political parties, specifically how responsive are the parties to their coalitions, and how does that create challenges for addressing major issues facing the nation? I, I think that uh, the state of our political parties is, is strong. Uh, the, the parties are homogeneous. Uh, they're disciplined. Uh, they, for the most part, control their nominations. And they structure almost everything in our political world. Uh, change, real change, is takes place through the two major parties, and that is partly a result of the electoral system that we've had for a long, long time, and partly the result of other um, changes that have come more recently. As far as the responsiveness of the parties. Uh, I would say that they're not necessarily designed to be responsive to the public. Uh, parties would much rather be responsive to their activists and to their uh, the people who participate every day in political life, the people who control nominations, who give money, who bundle money, who endorse candidates. Uh, in fact, when forced to choose, the activists will be taken care of much before the average voter. What do you see as some of the most significant challenges facing each of the major political parties. I'm wondering, just because it seems that both are facing competing coalitions within their parties. Can you speak to that, Marty? Yeah, I mean, that is definitely a challenge. And, and you know, internal strife, uh, you know, comes and goes. And I think sometimes we over-dramatize the internal party fights. Um, that's what parties are, they're, they're coalitions. Uh, they compromise competing demands, um, and they aggregate societal interests. And in order to gain majorities, they have to do those things. Um, I think the major challenge uh, is has to do with their most defining uh, activity, and that is nominations. Um, as we know, the Republicans lost control of their nominating process in 2016 uh, with epic consequences. Um, you know, they they did not mobilize against Donald Trump in time. They were feeble when they did. Uh, it was too late when they did. They didn't get behind a candidate who could unite the party and uh, present um, a useful and um, respectable candidate in the general election. Now, Donald Trump won the general election, which was a surprise, but not as big a surprise as the fact that he won the nomination. Um, the ability today to work around party elites through the media, through social media, through uh, private money, uh, creates uncertainty. 
and makes it much more likely that we will get candidates that are factional, like Donald Trump, and that can't unite the country and govern effectively. It struck me at the what Marty said just made me think of uh, at the at the first presidential debate. Uh, I'm trying to remember what the conversation was about when he said this, but it it really stood out to me uh, when Joe Biden. I think maybe um, Donald Trump was saying something about you know you um, you're going to be beholden to the the liberals, the progressives in Congress, and you're going to that's their agenda is going to become your agenda, and you know people should be should be afraid of that. And Joe Biden had some statement where he just stood out there and said, I am the Democratic Party. And I thought that was so striking because, I mean, he is the Democratic Party, right? And and th- th- there are cleavages and there are divi- there is division and there is strife. But if if he were to win, um, he is the leader of the, the, the de facto leader of the Democratic Party and it's his party. And, uh, and some of that strife will be subsumed under his leadership, I guess. Would you agree with that, Marty? Um, well, I had a different response when when he said that, and I remember that very clearly. He said, "I defeated, I defeated Bernie Sanders. I am the Democratic Party." Right? I cringed when he said that because I didn't, I don't necessarily think that elected officials, you know, are the ones that drive party activity. I think it's more of of the activists, the the uh, policy demanders, um, and he is the party. You know, at the, that moment, he is. Uh, but when he, if he does take office, you know, there's still plenty of uh, coalition partners in the party that are going to bear, bring pressure to bear on him. And um, the Democratic Party will be around longer uh, than Joe Biden and has been around longer before him. Um, so, you know, yes, he's the de facto leader of the party, the face of the party, um, but he's going to face, you know, pressure uh, from various um, coalition partners. and. You know, it was a it was a good line. It was a very good line, um, and one that I think you know people who study parties, you know, really got to chew on for for a little while. Yeah, yeah, and I, I agree with you. I think that does, him saying that doesn't mean that the the strife goes away. It you know maybe if any if nothing else, it's him trying to signal to fence sitters or you know re, you know moderate Republicans, people Republicans who might not want to support Trump, that I will not be beholden to. The liberal wing of my party, I will be the final, you know, decision. Um, but of course, he does need to take into account uh, the views of of the different, um, uh, you know, the different the different uh, parts of the party. Yeah, and and I have I have students that you know are clamoring for more parties, and they say, well, look at you know the Democrats and the Republicans have you know so much you know infighting, and and you know there's the liberal wing of the Democratic Party and the right wing of the Republican Party, and you know, wouldn't they split, you know, they could splinter off and we could have four parties. And, and I think so you can make too much of the internal strife. I mean, you know, our system just incentivizes, you know, two parties and, and, and you know, the, the ability to create majorities and cobble together majorities. And so, you know, the parties get together and they fight, um, but they're, you know, back together when it counts at usually. And um, that's why they've remained so, um, so resilient. I was also struck by Biden's comment about I am the Democratic Party. I'm also struck that we all made it through the debate. But for me, <laughs> but for me, you know, I did. I wondered. Too soon. There's one more. One tonight. more tonight. Right? <laughs> but I, you know, I did wonder. My immediate reaction was, wow, did he just alienate a lot of people when he said that? That was my initial reaction to that very striking comment. 
Well, we also have been talking a lot about Trump's Republican Party, too, right? Like, the Republican Party is now Trump's, and that has struck me a lot, too, um, in, in, in sort of the same way as Joe Biden's comments struck me. Yeah, I mean, the fact that the Republican Party, and, you know, this may have been partly a result of, you know, the strange nature of this year's conventions, uh, and the fact that they were virtual conventions, but, you know, the Republican Party, you know, didn't bother with a platform. It, basically, their platform was, well, whatever President Trump wants is our platform. And that is unheard of. I mean, not that the platforms are that important to everyday Americans, but they're important to a lot of people. And there's a, you know, big fights over platforms at conventions in years, in cycles past. And, and so that was striking as well. I mean, we live in a society where personality drives things, media coverage, you know, we fetishize the personality and the individuals, um, but I, you know, I still believe in the part a party-centered system, and um, you know, even though you know Donald Trump is is a direct challenge to that uh, party-centered setup. This has been an incredible conversation, and I'm so grateful to both of you for joining us in what has been certainly an unpredictable and rather chaotic year, and a major election. Um, See, we're recording this October 22nd, so what are we, less than two weeks away? Um, we do ask a question of all of our guests, and we'd like you both to respond. What would each of you do to strengthen our democracy? I, I think that a couple ideas come to mind for me and, and, and relate to some of what we've been talking about throughout this conversation. Uh, one would be um, this point that Marty made earlier about free and fair elections. I think that one of the, the fundamental uh, um, aspects of a strong democracy is is free and fair elections, and it, it is also participation. And, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of ways that we could make voting easier. Uh, we've seen a lot of movement in those in some of those areas this year as a result of the pandemic um, in terms of things like you know, absentee, expanded access to absentee ballots, early voting, automatic registration, you know, same day registration. Um, we know that the, even though turnout in 2016 for the presidential election was, I believe, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 percent, maybe a little less, among people who were registered, turnout rates were significantly higher, I think about 87 percent. So we know that once people take that step to get registered, uh, they are then much more likely to to cast their vote on election day. So I think just putting more effort into getting people um, involved in elections and getting uh, them to, to participate. But along with that, I would also put uh, the question of information. Um, uh, we live in, 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 a, in a culture, in a society where we have access to so much information. So I don't think the, 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 the solution here is more information. I, I, I think the solution is, 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 something to do with information literacy and, and helping people sift through the vast array of information that's available. Um, people are overwhelmed uh, by the amount of information that's available. And, and instead of allowing them to become more informed, instead it, it often, I think, discourages them. And there's some data to support this and makes them feel overwhelmed and, 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 and less efficacious. So if there's some way that we can you know, improve the quality of information or information literacy or improve the uh, availability of sources that really distill what's at stake in elections, I think that would improve people's capacity to participate and their um, 
their sense of efficacy and and their their interest in elections and their willingness to participate. I don't know concretely what that would look like, but I think that is a challenge, and I think it would to, to solve that, address that challenge would really strengthen our democracy. Yeah, I think I can. You know what I have prepared to to say. I think uh, goes well with what Kathleen talked about. Uh, not only you know making it easier for people to register, uh, to vote, to vote, but also to get get involved. And this idea of information, I, I would I would say strengthen the parties, uh, especially at the expense of the media, uh, and especially ex- at the expense of social media. Um, and then once you uh, have done that, incentivize the parties to encourage broader p- popular participation. I believe that uh, more democracy is better democracy. So make it easier for people to get involved. Um, I'd like to tell my students, you know, as a slogan, vote. You know, it's the least you can do. Uh, and you can do much more than vote. You know, voting is great. One vote, you know, is, is what it is. But if you call 100 people to remind them to vote, uh, that's a hundred times the impact uh, that your individual vote has. You know, drive people to the polls. Um, I think we should be looking to multiply our impact and not just vote. Um, and I think the way, the best way to channel that extra effort uh, are the political parties. Uh, the parties are are best suited to um, to hone that uh, effort, to channel that effort, and that's why I'd like to see the parties remain strong. I, I believe that the parties, you know, strong parties are have been associated throughout history with higher turnout. Um, and I think higher turnout is something that, you know, we should we should aim for uh, and higher particip- levels of participation as well. Do your students seem excited to vote this cycle? I, I think so. I, they definitely seem engaged um, with with everything. They, they seem frustrated with the polarization. I, I countless discussion posts that have mentioned you know, the personal relationships that have been strained by politics, Um, friends, family, I mean, people, you know, without getting into details, you know, they would say things like, you know, a friend, you know, if this happened to a friend or, you know, when really it might have been them. But, um, you know, I think the animosity that we see in the public has really trickled down to, you know, the individuals and students and their families and their friends. And I think they're they're very discouraged by that, but hopefully, you know, that doesn't lead to a disengagement. It leads to more engagement to try to fix things. Yeah, and, and becoming aware of what's at stake through through information and through the parties and these different resources, um, I think, can demystify the process and, and sort of underscore what's at stake. Uh, you know, I know that a lot of times when people take the class that Marty and I teach, like an introductory U.S. government class. Uh, people who are majors are from all across the university. Uh, you know, this is oftentimes the one political science class they take, and and it's an exciting time to teach the class, and it it, it does uh, show them what's at stake, and and maybe um, makes them a little bit more likely to engage in that participation. Young people, we've seen in in surveys recently, I believe, are uh, not necessarily super enthusiastic voters all the time. We know that their turnout rates are uh, historically quite low, although there was a spike in 2018. Um, But young people are engaging in more unconventional forms of participation. Um, We see that they're more likely to, you know, take part in protests over the last several months or um, their enthusiasm, their reported enthusiasm for this election is higher. 
will we see higher turnout as a result? Well, we'll all find out the answer to that question. But it does seem that um, the past several years have been uh, a time that has been, um, you know, mo mobilizing. Um, and so I think that's p perhaps a positive trend. We'll have to see if it if it persists.